This week we traveled to Austin, Texas, home of Book People, the largest bookstore in the largest state, not named Alaska. I talked with Steve Burkew, the longtime owner. Steve's a fascinating guy. He's scared away major chains from competing against him, sat as president of the American Booksellers Association, and taken a once-fledgling bookstore to one that nearly tops every list of great destination bookstores. We talked during this year's South by Southwest by phone, so I apologize for any suboptimal audio. Here's our conversation. So South by Southwest is happening right now. Um, is that it is? Is is book you can pe- almost hear the? I, I can in the middle. I've, if I put the phone out away from my ear, you can hear the thumping. There are three uh, concert venues within. I mean, not normally concert venues, but surrounding the store basically within earshot. Um, is uh, is book people a part of that in any capacity? Yeah, yeah. We're well. We're we're the official bookseller for the South by Southwest. Meaning, uh, what does that mean? It means we sell books at uh, author events. They have a lot of authors here, or a lot of speakers who have books, and we sell the books for those speakers. Gotcha. Wherever that happens to be. They're not, that's not happening in our store. That's happening at their, wherever the various venues are. And I'm, I'm, I'm guessing there's quite a bit of an uptick in, in traffic, too, just in the store in general, because the town is just sort of overtaken by outsiders. Has it had a yeah, positive effect? It, it has a neutral effect, really. I mean, several hundred thousand, several hundred thousand people show up for this thing. Uh, and But uh, the problem for us is that uh, our regular customers keep away. People who live here, you know, don't want to go because it's impossible to get around. Gotcha. So I read that you're retiring in June. Yes, I'm planning to retire at the target of June. Can you give listeners a quick recap on your journey from a lawyer in Seattle to CEO of the largest bookseller in Texas? Um, I practiced, well, um, you know, I I went to law school at the University of Texas. I practiced in Texas. I was a legal aid lawyer, and uh, I had a fellowship that took me to Seattle, so I became a Washington State lawyer as well. And uh, practiced uh, there, but but only for a year, uh, primarily. And then I practiced in California for another year um, with regard to the kind of litigation I was doing, which was <laughs> juvenile law, I mean, about juvenile delinquents, basically. I ended up with a huge lawsuit that uh, out of legal aid in El Paso, where I had started, that went on to eventually, over a 17-year period, to the Supreme Court and back uh, through up and down and uh um, we had oversight over the Texas Youth Commission for 17 years, actually, and uh, so that that went on for a, well for 17 years. But in the meantime, um, I practiced law. Then started being a regular lawyer, practiced law in um, El Paso for a little while, and then in Austin. And uh, at some point. Uh, um, basically fell into book selling uh, by the accident of having a friend of mine who uh, owned uh, book people as a sole proprietorship talking about it, uh, finding a location and thinking it would be good to move his store at a party that a bunch of us were at. And so I had uh, told him I had just been to Denver and seen this great bookstore um, tattered cover that we ought to look at that as a model that would be a great idea and that if he and this other guy I was talking to wanted to, wanted to do it count me in what was the model at tattered cover that you that kind of caught your eye well, 
Because at the time, this was in the uh, early 90s, and uh, at the time, Book People was a strip center, the largest bookstore in town at 8,000 feet, but a large bookstore nevertheless, uh, by those days, standards, uh, but still a strip center kind of store. And Tattered Cover was this freestanding, cool, four-story building with a great stairwell and all this stuff going on. That seemed like just a great, a better kind of looking better acting better everything kind of store aesthetic so any of these other guys went up there the next week and within within 10 days of that party we were raising money uh to move the store to the current location which is where we are now and the store went from eight to forty thousand square feet and uh three floors uh you know a lot of space and a lot of books and a lot of everything um you know, that's that. So then the next thing that happened is uh, we, uh, the investors, uh, noted that the guy we had thought was going to run the place didn't transition so well from the smaller to the larger format. So a couple other guys took over for a while uh, to run it, and they really weren't interested. And in 99, uh, the partners asked me if I would take over because the store was floundering. We were thinking of closing at that time. And I came in and uh, immediately looked at some, you know, closing offers that we had gotten about the space itself and rejected them all, wrote some hostile lawyer-like letters to some people that got no response. They were so hostile, actually. And uh, (laughs) uh, then started figuring out how to make it work as a business. And by 2000, the the, the next full year, I began to show a minor profit and and then uh, since then, we've been profitable every year and only uh, been more profitable as the years go on. That's fantastic. Under your watch, the store has been described as a national literary destination. Can you talk about that and, and what that means to you and, and what stands out? And, and, and since you're retiring, um, any regrets? Well, I mean, you know, when you do something and you've done it for a long time, there's a certain, uh, you know, bittersweet part about leaving. But uh, I don't have any regrets about what's happened here at the store. I mean, I came into a place that was floundering in essentially September of 99. By 2000, we were, I mean, a year later, we were showing a modest profit. 2005, a mere five years later, we were named uh, Bookseller of the Year by Publishers Weekly, which is given out once a year to what is, you know, claimed to be the best store in the country. Uh, that was pretty great. Um, and we were building during those years a national reputation. Uh, before then, uh, we were frankly probably unknown or little known in the, the book industry. So, you know, we got into it. Uh, as part of the industry, we started developing more programs, uh, programming that publishers liked a lot, uh, pub- programming that obviously helped us as a business here in, in Austin. And uh, just kept building on it. It's a kind of incremental thing, like I mean, like many businesses. And so each year we have we have had more uh, year after year, more of what we do. We added camps uh, twelve years ago, summer camps that became real well known in the industry, uh, literary book camps. Uh, we um, have a, a robust school program, uh, a book fair program. We have you know 
we do conferences that we didn't used to do. We're, like I said, the bookseller for South by Southwest, but also for the Texas Book Festival, also for the Texas Conference for Women, the California one too, by the way, and the uh, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts conferences for women. We sell the books at those things as well. Um, we have a program we took years to develop with Alamo Draft House uh, that allows us to live stream authors from any of their locations uh, to whichever ones they and we select uh, for the pro- you know for the right audience for the for the particular author the particular topic so that we now can essentially have an author in Brooklyn or Los Angeles or something you know being live streamed all over the country um, um, to any of the 15 or I guess now 17 states that they're involved they're, they are in uh, with live audiences here able to interact with the author um, you know which has been a great thing um, and we've been able generally speaking so far movie tie-in kind of authors because they're a movie business obviously but uh, that's been a great thing that's happened during the years and just thing after thing, you know, has developed over the years, and each one has led to something else. So, you know, I'm pretty happy with all of that. It sounds amazing. You know, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is somebody who uh, innovated and, and kept on turning over every stone, and that's great. And that's something that I was actually going to touch on. I was going to ask you about those literary camps. But you were, as president of the American Booksellers Association, um, yeah. and I'm, I'm somebody who had flirted with the idea of opening a store in Los Angeles last year, um, and I, I dealt with them, um, on a few occasions with regard to some things, uh, you were instrumental in developing these studies, showing the importance, uh, of the benefits of independent, independent businesses. Can you talk about some of the findings and what the studies have resulted in, in terms of independent business growth and sustainability? Uh, Yeah. 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 What happened was, is, uh, we, uh, we're in a, uh, I guess you could call it a fight, with a developer who uh, owned property all around us, really, and was planning to develop a, a, a corner about a block, a block, less than a block, really, about 400 feet from our door, um, and was going to put, had a contract with the borders to oh, go in right. there. that's right, borders. I, rem- I read about that. That's right. Yeah, so we were, we were highly uh, irritated about that but, I mean, you know, competition's competition. But then I discovered, uh, after with a minimal amount of research, that the city was subsidizing the development, and that irritated me because obviously I didn't feel like the city should be subsidizing a retail development in general. I don't know if that's obvious, but I don't think they should, or any city should. And two, uh, I didn't like them d- subsidizing a development that would effectively ruin uh, both book people and my friends across the street, Waterloo, who are a record store, with bringing out of borders within a few hundred feet of our doors. Because, frankly, in retail, you take even if it was only 10% of our business away, that might kill both of us. Right. So, so uh, rather than worry about the competition, I worried about the city's involvement. And so uh, I got a, sent out an email wondering uh, how it might work. Uh, and I got John Koontz, who owned Waterloo, to send one out to his email list. We had about three or 4,000 people on our list in those days. Um, and within four days, I'd gotten my own email back. Uh, and people were just sending it all over town. And, of course, the email had suggested they get in touch with the city. So they did. They got in touch with the city in droves. Eventually, it drove the city to force uh, the development, the developer to come back to the city to get the, the subsidy renewed and made them negotiate with us. 
while that's going on, um, I started an independent business alliance here in Austin, the Austin Independent Business Alliance. We started, uh, and one of the things that Book People, Waterloo, and the Austin Independent Business Alliance decided to do was talk to these local, excuse me, local economists about some sort of economic impact analysis because uh, all of us always were going on about how much better it was to shop at locally owned businesses than it was to shop in those days. We were talking about chains, to shop at chains. But um, nobody had ever done a study to prove it that we knew about. So we, these economists thought, well, we can just go online and we can figure it all out and we'll get you an answer pretty quickly. It turned out to be a, a, a first instance uh, event, uh, astounding to all of us. Uh, nobody had ever done that study before. So they did the study. Uh, they compared the people in Waterloo to borders was the first initial study. And the results that came back showed that there was 3.5 times the local economic impact if you purchased at a locally owned business as, as compared to purchasing at a chain. Hmm. Uh, all of that was pretty simple. There was a multiplier effect. Uh, we obviously used local lawyers, accountants, suppliers, all those sort of things, except for the books, of course. I mean, but everything else, everything admin is local for a local business because that's what's most convenient. Whereas, obviously, for a chain, uh, what's most convenient is wherever their headquarters happens to be to have all that stuff. So they don't pump the same amount of money uh, per per store, I mean, into the into the local economy. And the multiplier effect has to do with the fact that because we're hiring all these local people, they are generating more money out of the money that we're paying them for their services. Right, they're putting that money back in the community. Yeah, because they live here too. Right. And so it's going back into the community. And then there's a lot of things that are not exactly intangible, but they're a little softer, like all of our donations to local schools, charities, et cetera, et cetera. That's money flowing into the community in a way that doesn't happen if it if the money goes out of the community. So that was the initial study. Um, a year later, that was in 2002, by the way, is when that study came out. Um, and this was, in, this was and, done in response to borders potentially opening in, up? Well, it was part of the campaign we, we devised uh, to, to, to educate people about the value of shopping at locally owned businesses. The concept was that, okay, if we can get people behind the idea that if there's a value, a quantitative value, not just a feel-good value of shopping at locally owned businesses, that when they decide to buy a record or buy a book, they'll come into us because we're the local guys and they'll and they'll go to other local stores and they'll skip the chains uh, to some degree. A year later, we did a second study with these same guys and we kind of re- took the formula that they'd come up with, the 3.5 times value, and reversed it in the sense that we were trying to find out, well, what does that mean in terms of dollars and uh, for the community? And so what we did was take the middle Saturday in November, um, and that was randomly chosen as before Christmas, but not during December, which was going to skew it too much. But the idea was that it would point people toward local business for Christmas. 
And so we looked at, okay, let's, what can we do to evaluate how many dollars in retail sales there are? Well, the only way we could figure out to do it was to get the sales tax generated um, in Travis, in the county, I mean, because it's by county with our state comptroller, it's called here, who has those statistics for the whole state. And so they gave us the numbers that there were for the November of 2002, I believe it was, it was $45 million in retail sales had been generated on that Saturday in November. And so if you applied this 3.5 formula to it, what would that mean? Well, what it would mean was that um, the local economic impact would be um, approximately $20.25 million. Uh, if you use that value, whereas the cha- if you bought everything in chain stores, the economic impact value locally would be $5.85 million. Wow, so, so a huge, huge. Yeah, $14 million in difference. Uh, that's a f- 100% at each of them. So we just said, okay, we'll just split it. We'll say, assume nobody buys 100% of anything, so we'll go with 50%. If you buy, put 50% of your money into locally owned businesses, you're going to with that in that one day you're going to increase the the local economic impact by 7 million dollars in one day mm-hmm. um, meanwhile at that very same moment there was all this talk and this still goes on about s- subsidies by cities and particularly ours to bring a a distribution plant to the town and so these guys had numbers on what a 100-employee distribution plant would generate. And m- miraculously, it turned out that a 100-person distribution plant had an annual local economic impact of about $7 million. Wow. wow. Okay, so we, our, 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 our part marketing piece was simple. Hey, you can generate that in one day in Austin by just shopping – at locally owned businesses for that day. Amazing. And and was that the nail in the coffin for Borders, or was there more to that? Well, bar, no, Borders went out. Borders, the nail in the coffin for Borders was more oblique than that. What happened is is that the city, in these endless negotiations, made us negotiate. We had to negotiate for like a year with the landlord about stuff. I don't remember what, I don't even actually remember what we were negotiating about precisely, because we just wanted Borders to go away. Right. But, uh, but ultimately, borders quit. I mean, because there, meanwhile, unbeknownst to us, groups had formed to boycott borders in different parts of the city. There were two existing borders. This part town. of the Keep Austin Weird movement. Well, Keep Austin Weird is a, a sort of parallel other thing I started, but okay. that's a different thing. But uh, but people, some bunch of people chained themselves to the door of one of the borders and, you know, wouldn't let people in. It was just kind of crazy, really. We right. didn't have anything to do with it, but it was it was obviously beneficial to us. And borders well, was experiencing about a 15% drop in their sales at their other two stores here. And they just finally quit. I mean, the, the deadlines ran for when their leases would, you know, kick in. And so they just said, we quit, that we don't want to deal with this anymore. So they went away, and then the whole project went away, and in fact, nothing even happened there for 10 more years. Um, and now it's an office building uh, that was built, finally. Uh, actually, and that office building just opened last year, so it only started two years ago. So that was all an excellent result. Meanwhile, in conjunction with this economic impact analysis, I one day in 2002 asked John across the street, I said, you want to 
buy some bumper stickers. Why don't we put Keep Austin Weird on them? And since we're not partners, we'll put both our logos at the ends. We'll, we're not partners. Let's write support local businesses on the bottom as our tagline to, while we're doing this together. He argued about it. He said, I don't know. I said, come on, John. We'll buy 5,000 of these things. We'll give them away in our stores. We'll split them, 2,500 each. We'll see what happens. So he finally says, okay. So we did it. And uh, this was in, I don't know, probably November, December of 2002 that we do it. Um, I don't know. Within a week, John calls me and says, you got any more of those stickers? I think I'm out. I said, <laughs> I don't have any idea. So I check and find out we're out, too. So we ordered 10,000. And uh, we split those. And we've since then, this is 2002, we've been ordering them ever since. We've given away about 400,000 of them now over wow. time. Uh, I got a, I got a picture sent to me, which I have on my wall because it's our hat on my wall. I just took all this stuff down in anticipation of retiring, but I had a picture of a Humvee in the staging area outside Baghdad in April of 2003 and the original invasion of Iraq. Uh, and on the back of the Humvee is a book people bumper sticker and a keep Austin weird bumper sticker, which we took as, we took as excellent market penetration in six months. Or it wasn't six months, it was like five months. Absolutely, 100%. And the mother of the driver of the uh, Humvee had sent it to us, you know, sent the picture to me. But, That's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty great. Yeah. So then Keep Austin Weird got, got mixed up in the in the negotiations because the negotiations there were... Uh, you know, followed closely by the newspaper. In fact, we were we got more press that year than we probably ever have gotten. Uh, we were in the paper almost every day, uh, usually on the front page with the fight at Six and Lamar and the the battle and all this stuff. I mean, lots of you know, lots of war of war terminology. And um, Keep Austin Weird kept getting mixed up in it. So they kept, the two things got conflated in a way that was completely beneficial to both AIBA and to book people into Waterloo. Uh, so we were all happy about it getting all mixed up together, even though they were kind of separate things and, you know, were going on separately, but at the same time. And over the course of all this, I mean, Keep Austin Weird has apparently become the city motto. Uh, unofficial and, or official? And, and, and still is. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, I don't know about official. I think unofficial. It still is. I mean, it still goes on endlessly. There's weird stuff about weird all the time. No, I you see. Know, it, I see, I've seen the uh, the stickers in Los Angeles several times over the years. I, I had no idea of the nexus, but now uh, now I do. Yeah, and then friends of mine in the book industry picked it up. Like at Santa Cruz, I mean, they have keep Santa Cruz weird. Just keep Portland weird. There's keep Louisville weird. All kinds of places that that bought into the weird thing. And then there are other places that took variations on the same theme, but it basically all rose out of the same deal, which is marginally funny, actually. I mean, the whole idea was to have a sense of humor, but to have a serious message. Yeah. Overall, book retail is down double digits, but indie booksellers are actually growing. Why uh, do you think yeah. that is? What's what's happening? Well, several reasons. Uh, I mean, one, I mean, and there's no sense not mentioning this is borders going bankrupt opened up a lot of space for bookstores but the other thing and the most important thing is how much the local shop local movement has gained strength over the last 15 years um i mean local stuff is you know is still very popular 
everywhere. It used to be only in a few places. Now it's everywhere. Even our pals at American Express decided to do, you know, a small business Saturday to, to stave off Black Friday or whatever it was. Right. Um, I mean, so, I mean, you're getting giant national players doing that. You get Walmart trying to go on about their local Walmart. I mean, the localness is is a big selling point. People want uh, the kinds of things that a local business can do, even in a place like Los Angeles and various neighborhoods. People want a local feel for what's going on in their neighborhood. A hundred percent. And what is that? Uh, With a bookstore, it's your local bookstore. And so local bookstores are being patronized by people who want to have somewhere that's a place they can go that they can have conversations with an actual person and talk about whatever they're interested in. And virtually every bookstore in the United States sells the same thing, and that's these interpersonal relationships and the ability to talk to someone about what it is you buy. Because, as you know and I know, no one has to buy a book anywhere outside their bedroom. And, uh, People choose to do that, and they choose to do it for the experience they're going to have when they go to the local bookstore. I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. I mean, they they don't have to go; they choose to go. And your in your experience at at Book People has been uh, been you've been a positive recipient of the local movement. You would say, like it's been uh, the oh yeah, absolutely okay. Because there, I mean, are, there are there are some stores, uh, that, especially that we've talked to in the series so far as well, that you know, uh, foot traffic and getting people in is just it's, it's they just can't overcome it. And, and I mean, location plays into that. The city, the demographics that you sure. are a part of play into that. But um, I, I read that that Amazon. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. If you had a thought, no, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, part of it. Look, I mean, part of it for book people is blind luck. I mean, Austin's gotten to be very hot as a city. Yeah, and. Uh, there's massive development in the part of downtown where we, when I moved in here, when we moved to this location, this was the edge of town, which wasn't even particularly called downtown. And now for the last 11 or 12 years, there's been a residential tower uh, be completed within five blocks of here every single year. Right. And that, I can look out the window right now and see two of them. It'll be online in the next year or so. And that definitely uh, doesn't so hurt. We, we've had, no, yeah. massive population growth in my neighborhood uh, matters, obviously. Uh, but anyhow, back to what you were saying. I, I read that Amazon was going to become your landlord when they purchased Whole Foods. Did that actually happen I, uh, in terms of... Our... I mean, as far as I know, yeah. I mean, they, so, so Whole Foods uh, was my... Whole Foods and book people built this building together, uh-huh. okay? And uh, they were half, and we were half of the building. They, when they finally part of that whole negotiation with the uh, um, developer, took book, took Whole Foods across the street from here to that other building, in which they now occupy entirely as their world headquarters. Um, so the that this this building was owned, however, by Whole Foods. Had more money than book people. They also own some piece of property somewhere in California that I was aware of, but I can't remember where it is anymore. As far as I know, that's all they own in their entire world. The rest of it's stuff in their real estate like portfolio. Yeah, yeah. So um, my understanding, I mean, uh, they were, yeah, they were bought by Amazon. Amazon owns what they owned, used to own. So hence, uh, Amazon is our landlord. Yeah, it's just any direct. 
Yeah, that's just a, like a full circle irony there a little bit. It's it's just interesting. I, I when I read that I thought like I was like wow, it's uh it's impossible to avoid no matter how hard you try. Um yeah. so Senator well, when a lawyer tells you that it's a good idea to have a lease, uh, this is one of the reasons. Oh, absolutely, really absolutely, absolutely, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, uh, especially uh, ironclad lease terms for sure. Um, so, yeah. Senator Chuck Schumer recently spoke about his. He used the word sympathetic uh, attitude towards tech giants. He said specifically that uh, the world would be a worse place overall if Amazon were not in it. Do you agree with that? What do you think when you hear something like that? I don't know what he's talking about. Um, you know, I mean. I mean, I don't know what he's talking about. He's probably not talking about books. Anyhow, he's probably talking about all the other stuff Amazon's involved with, like cloud development and AI right. and all this sort of thing that, that he thinks is valuable. And maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, but the thing about Amazon and books that has always been irritating is that books were never something Amazon's been interested in. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. That was It was a means to an end. I mean, th- what they are is, a, I mean, it, they're, 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 they have, the book, Selling has value uh, to Amazon. It always has had value, and it's always had the same value, and that's to acquire purchasers, buyers, to bring online. Uh, There are all these studies, I mean, that tell you that that book buyers buy more other stuff online. Yeah, disposable income. Yeah, so the original book buyers that were going on Amazon were great because they bought more of the other stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I uh, I mean, Amazon's never made money selling books. I mean, that's just not where their money comes from. I mean, their money comes from, you know, prime, these days, prime memberships, uh, you know, cloud space, all that kind of stuff. It's it's really not, and books are just something they have because they have it. Right. And once again, it's a continuation of acquiring new email addresses, essentially, and prime memberships. When you see that they're now opening physical stores um nationwide i think they're up to 14 or 15 uh yeah, the 14th just opened here in austin okay what do you make of that what goes through your head i mean i look at them i look at them as places where they sell prime memberships and devices a little bit so you I don't mean, the bookstore in austin you don't see them as 3,800 stores uh, 3,800 titles i mean you don't think you're going to lose customers to them in terms of book sales no okay. Not, none that we haven't lost already I mean, nobody's nobody's going there instead of going here. Uh, for one thing, they're ten miles away, and and with our traffic load, much like yeah. yours, yeah. taking ten miles to buy a book is not happening too often. No, but it's good. It's good to hear that, especially from someone in your shoes. Because look, I'm 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 a bibliophile, and I and I buy books in bookstores uh, as much as I possibly can, and I wouldn't go out of my way to go to Amazon just because. And I'm a Prime member, and I and I I consume a lot of things on Amazon. Um, but it's nice to hear that people are still, it's, it's not really, I mean, we don't expect, there's no way any bookstore person who, who's got any common sense expects people to give up Amazon over anything. Of but course, of what, course. what we really would like, I mean, frankly, is, is for you to buy one more book a year at a, at a, at your neighborhood local bookstore than you buy already. Just buy another one and skip, you know, trade in one of the Amazons for one of, at your local bookstore. That sounds like that another move. That sounds like a movement waiting for you to start right there. It sounds great. It's just one more book. There, yeah. There's a bumper sticker tagline ready, waiting to happen. <laughs> one more book. One more book. Day. You know what? It's true. If you think about it and you add it, if you add all that up across all the, how many bookstores, how many indie bookstores are in the U.S. right now? Rough count? Well, I mean, rough count of 2,200. Okay. Well, there you go. You have one of the most robust 
programming schedules uh, out of any of the bookstores that I've researched. What goes into that? Like, what was the what was the vision behind that, and and what drives that? Well, I mean, well, people like to people who bibliophiles uh, like to have an opportunity to get FaceTime with their the people that they're groupies for, which is authors. Uh, so it's. It's pretty great to have authors show up, and I mean, we do, on, you know, author types like politicians and musicians and stuff as well. But yeah, we have about 500 author events a year. We have another couple of hundred, uh, you know, like story times and other non-author events going on uh, around here. The idea is part back to what I said about an experience you have that makes you go to a bookstore as opposed to just buying the book online. That's part of the experience. That's the idea that probably four or five nights a week we're going to have someone here that's going to be interesting, and certainly nobody's coming to all of them, but uh, there's going to be somebody in there every couple of weeks that you're going to find to be interesting enough to be worth coming down here. So hopefully when you come down here, you look around, you see what you like, and you come back when you need a book. Uh, that's that's kind of the idea, um, you know, showing off what we have so that people will come back and take a look at it again. These story times, when we started years ago, I don't know, five, ten people with their children, because these are for pre-readers usually, the story times are kids up to about five or six, first grade more or less, um, five, ten, fifteen mothers. We now have like a hundred mothers show up on a, uh, three times a week uh, with their kids, and the place is packed with yep. people <clears throat> coming here. Uh, those parents do develop a certain loyalty to the store because we're providing uh, something of literary entertainment, uh, educational value to their budding readers and young children. And it's in a very safe environment, and it's uh, uh, it's pleasant. And so they do develop a certain loyalty, and they do come back here when they need something that's not for their two-year-old or four-year-old. Uh, they come back here for other reasons. Um, that's a pretty great thing. There are loads of kids. We've been around for a long time. There are loads of kids who, you know, we're adults now. They're out of college, and they remember going to story time when they were four or six or whatever it might be. Um, that's pretty great. Yeah, absolutely. To have that kind of continuum of, of, of people that have been at a place and loved it. Um, I mean, the concept in my mind like that is people who are like fanatics for the restaurant that their parents ate at in college that they keep their parents can't quit thinking about and they take up take their kids to them for 20 years and then the kids suddenly love the place because they went all the time it's like comfort place or food whatever it might be it, it, you well well said and, and I'm, I'm living that i'm living proof too like we go to as many story times as we can it's because we want our uh, our children in my cohort, we want our children to be exposed to these sort of cultural environments uh, as opposed to tablets and screens and and just sort of, you know, limited two-dimensional experiences. Um, in your opinion, uh, overall, are authors doing enough to support bookstores? Like you have a lot of events, um, but in general, are authors, uh, are they are they liberal with their time? Is it an easy process relatively to get them in? Or is it a, is, is, there, is there a little bit of finagling that's involved? Well, I mean, there, you know, like I said, there are a couple thousand bookstores in the country, and everybody would like to have uh, every well-known author. 
So, uh, yes, there's certainly uh, something to it. I mean, we, as a you know nationally known bookstore now, and, and with connections with all the publishers, uh, we go to New York, we meet with publishers, we plan out who's coming where and when. Uh, every other bookstore, big bookstore in the country does a similar thing. The, the the problem in terms of author events is that it's, it is more difficult if you live in a place with, uh, you know, that's smaller, right? Uh, and frankly, that has worse airport service because I mean they do have to fly from here to the next place and you know right afterwards. So I mean we used to my first five years here I used to have to explain how you had to change planes in Dallas or Houston to get to Austin before we finally got you know more and more flights to New York and Los Angeles and everywhere so that people could come here without having to spend hours changing planes somewhere. Um, so, uh, yeah, you know, I think authors in general, though, are very supportive of bookstores, uh, and particularly independent bookstores, because virtually every author had their first reading at an independent bookstore. Right. That's true. A lot of authors, uh, there's a trend now where there's, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's a few authors that are actually reinvesting their, their money and resources into opening bookstores of their own. Um, yeah, no, is, I mean, you know, yeah, Ann Patchett's got, right. uh, got uh, Parnassus. the place in Parnassus, yeah. and, uh, uh, you know, there's, I mean, there's, um, there's a young you know, adult, books. yeah, there's a young adult author, I, his name escapes me, but he opened a store in, yeah. in, in New York. Yeah, uh, yeah, upper, upper, up, yeah. Upstate. I can't remember his name. Yeah. It's like Kenny, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's the, uh, I think it's Diary of a Wimpy it's Kid. Wimpy Snicket, isn't it? It's the Wimpy, oh, it's the, it's yeah, the Wimpy yeah, Kid Wimpy books. Kid. It's yeah. Wimpy Kid, yeah, that's who it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah he's got a bookstore. Somebody else just opened one, too. I, uh, I can't remember who something. Oh, uh, Rick Rus- uh, Richard Russo's daughter has a store. Oh. Um, she has a store, uh... Yeah, I forgot where they're. I can't remember where they're. I think they're in the east somewhere, in northeast someplace. Interesting. Well, it's an interesting trend to see, nonetheless. Um, I want to pull. Yeah. I want to pull it back to about uh, thirty thousand feet for the next round of questions. Um, what to do? You, and you have a lot of experience in your in your coming. You're going to be closing this chapter um, of your career. Um, what two to three things do bookstores need to do better? in 2018 to be profitable and sustainable in your opinion? If you just had some worldly advice to give to booksellers or book entrepreneurs out there? Thing number one would be to remember that it's called the book business, uh, meaning that there is an actual business component to running a bookstore. And you have to make sure you understand how business works in general so that you can apply that. You can apply those principles to operating your bookstore. Uh, that's, that would be the most important thing I would think from a, a, a as a entrepreneur trying to make a profit at a business. Secondly, I mean, as a bookstore, you have to, it, this thing about creating an environment that people will find attractive and choose to go to that I was describing earlier. That actually takes a little work. It's not just because there are books in the building. Uh, you do have to do something to make that environment happen. And that environment really is hyper-local. It depends on where you are, what that is. 
um, it's it's not always the same. You know, it's not always having like a coffee shop or a coffee pot or a, or, or a cat or whatever. It is. I mean, you know, there's lots of things. It depends on where you are, what it is, and the idea of being there and being from wherever there is is you should have an idea of what it is that will make people feel comfortable and want to be in that space. That's before you think about selling anything. That's just you know in the space. And then last but not least, I mean, you have to be able to interact in a in a way that makes people happy to be there. Because in the grand scheme of things, you get one chance. Uh, it's always one chance. It's like it's like flipping a coin. You, it's always the same odds, no matter how many times you do it. Even though if you do it a thousand times, it comes up some percentage of one or the other. It's like every time someone comes in, if they have a good experience. They don't really think much about it because they sort of expect to have a good experience. But every time they come in, any time they come in and have a bad experience, they're going to go tell a whole bunch of people about what a bad experience it was. And that's not good for your business. So you have to constantly work at creating that kind of environment so that people have that positive experience when they come in and so that you offer something that's worth their coming in for. And how important do your booksellers play in this? Oh, they're the, that's, they play a huge, they're, they're, that's what you have to sell. What you have to sell is the personality of the booksellers and their, in, their knowledge. That's all you're selling. I mean, that, that's where the environment, that's where it comes from. The, the fact that I have people in here who know everything about different genres, and if you care a lot about that subgenre or something, there's someone in here who can talk to you about it. They're not selling you anything. They're just telling you what they read and don't read. And, if if you you know once you get in sync with some of them, I mean I have, I have lots of booksellers that have lots of personal customers who come in and get their opinion about whatever is new that's come out. I mean there's a massive load of books that come out every year. Uh, it takes a lot to try and keep up at all, and it be it's always nice to have somebody tell you they've read this thing, whatever it is, and <laughs> yeah. they thought it was good or, or not good. Uh, other than you know you saw some article somewhere and you're trying to guess whether it's really good or not. Right. And if you share, if you've met them and you have a personal relationship with them and you share their opinion, cause you've figured it out, they recommended these other four books and you loved them. Well, then you're likely to pay attention when they recommend the fifth book. You know, bookstores and, are, and fact, bookstores are the yeah. original, they're the original word of mouth environments. And now, yeah. and now in this, the, the tech, innovation or the information age that we're in word of mouth has become increasingly more valuable because there's so much noise out there and it's hard to get sort of think about think about the billions of dollars that tech companies pay to find influencers right Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's always that's pretty much what everybody in a bookstore is selling anything is. They're talking about what they remember and influencing people to pay attention to these books, and you know, maybe those other ones aren't that great, so skip them. Well, you know, the promise the promise of Facebook originally was that they were going to be this. Uh, they were going to trump Google uh, to the extent that they were going to focus on like versus link, meaning that you were going to uh, take recommendations from people that were in your inner circle, whether it you know be it books be it vacations, be it restaurants. Um, and that is sort of, they were trying to put 
uh, word of mouth on a, on a global scale. But um, yeah. I can't emphasize enough the, the, the fundamental root of that concept is still so true. I would rather read a book that you tell me about, and I'm going to ask you about a couple of your favorites in a moment, than I would from, from some um, book review or something from Kirkus, for example. I just like to hear what other humans have interacted with, and, and there's there's something that's just... Um, well, because you can suss out a little bit about whether it's the, this person's got the same sort of taste you there do you by go. talking to them. Absolutely. I mean, uh, there's nothing wrong with Kir- a Kirkus review, by the way. I mean, it's just that you have to know the reviewer to figure out whether your tastes happen to conform with that reviewer's taste. Right. Um, and you, 99% of the time, don't have any idea who the reviewer is. <laughs> So, uh, you know, so it's like, well, it might, it might be something I like, but might not be. I mean, how do you know? You know, there's no way to guess. It's true. Are there any changes that you would like to see within the industry as a whole? Well, I mean, there within the industry, I mean, I think the publishers have made a huge step toward trying to value their relationships with uh, independent bookstores. Independent bookstores remain a small portion of their business. I mean, they sell a lot of stuff to to uh, categories that uh, really people don't think about too much, except for the online guys. People think about that. They do sell a lot there, and they and uh, but the physical bookstores, we're you know, I mean, I'm including Barnes and Noble in that. We're a small percentage of their sales. They have all these like catalogs and things that they sell in that most people I didn't even know existed, frankly, until I got in the business. Um, but they could do more to really to promote. Um, independent book selling and it's and they've they've come around a lot to that because it is to their advantage to do it for the very reason you pointed out earlier that um, while many uh, channels are, are showing a decrease in sales uh, the independent book selling is actually showing an increase year over year year after year right uh, so they they, they they have people who look at those numbers too and they've, they've figured that out and as a result, they finally are coming around to doing things. And all these things cost them money. I mean, when they do things to support independent bookselling, it does cost them money some way or another. Marketing dollars, I don't know, per margin points. I mean, whatever it is, it costs them something. And so there has to be a value proposition for them as well. And, of course, that value proposition currently has been an increase in sales. So, yeah, they're, they're, they're coming around, and that's, that's, that's a good thing, actually. I'm glad to hear that. What is what does the word bookstore mean to you in 2018? Uh, still, a, like a third place, a place, a community resource, a place to go and have a, an experience that is not the experience you have when you're either in your office or in your home. What are the characteristics of a great bookseller? A great bookseller. Great personality, outgoing, uh, willing to share their knowledge with uh, strangers. Do you think print will always exist? Yes. What are you reading right now? Well, as we speak, I'm reading Way 1968 by Mark Bowden. It's about what it says, I guess, uh, the Battle of Way uh, in Vietnam in 19, January 31st, 1968. Um Awesome book, frankly. Uh, whether you like, whether you're a Vietnam War buff or not, it's a great book. Uh, you once you get fifteen pages into it, you can't quit. Those are the best kind. Uh, what's the best last book you read? <laughs> well, I read. I, I was a panelist on the National Book Award for nonfiction for la- that 
was awarded in the, to Mashabet Gessen in uh, October. And so for, I, for the last year and a half, I've read nothing except nonfiction. I've read a couple of hundred, actually. I've read more books than I ever thought I'd read in a short period of time. Uh, what stood out? And uh, I like The Killers of the Flower Moon by David Cran. That was an awesome book. That Mashabet Gessen won, by the way, but Killers of the Flower Moon was a finalist. It was an awesome book about the Osage Indians in northeastern uh, Oklahoma and basically how they got ripped off for their oil wealth that they got by accident. Hmm. That's an, but that book reads like a novel also. Uh, great, great book. What's the best last thing you watched? <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a Game of Thrones fan. I was, that was great. I was, I'm very sad that it's going to end. We're, uh, we're kindred spirits. Are you all caught up? Yeah, I'm caught up. I mean, I'm, I'm caught up and disappointed that I, there's nothing left to catch up on until the <laughs> until last the, six come out. Until they decide when That'd to be, release the, the last six, right? Yeah, and then I hope they change their mind, but I guess they won't. You know, so everything comes to an end, I guess. But God, I hate that, to have that one come down. I'll probably start over again and pretend I don't remember what's happening. We went back and rewatched, and you pick up so many things along the way. It's amazing because uh, you just there's a lot of scenes that don't make any sense until you have the full context. Um, if you weren't a bookseller, what would you be doing? I hope it wouldn't be being a lawyer again. Uh, anything but that. Right? I don't, yeah, well, not anything. I, I had, I enjoyed being a lawyer. I just, you know, I wouldn't want to do it anymore, but, uh, I don't know. I, uh, I'm, I'm vaguely enamored with, uh, all this tech stuff. It seems to go really fast and some of it actually seems to have some slight value. I think a lot of it's just a, like it doesn't have any value at all. I can't figure out why anybody cares, but some of it seems to be actually sort of valuable. And, uh, I'm not certain what my function would be in the tech world since I'm not very technically proficient, but it seems like a really interesting and mainly incredibly fast moving world. What's one piece of great advice you were told once that you can share today? My grandfather, he told me always do things the way other people don't. Uh, that's and, and uh, that's always seemed like a good a good advice. Uh, you know, I mean, I got uh, the message I took from it was don't just do stuff because other people do it that way. March to the beat of your own drum. Sort of, yeah. Complete the sentence. If I could do it all over again, <laughs> I don't know. I'd, uh, I'd I'd probably do it all the same because I can't. I'm I'm not uh, intellectually. Uh, facile enough to come up with a new plan <laughs> <laughs> complete this sentence uh, I, th I think I have an idea of what the answer is going to be but I'm going to ask it anyway Austin is Austin is <laughs> weird <laughs> <laughs> um, and two more uh, uh, the, this, the last one is actually the most important question of all because uh, I'm about to have one after this uh, what book have you recommended the most over the years if you could think back on books uh, that you tell people to read um, yeah, A Soldier of the Great War by uh, Mark Helprin. You are not the first person that has said that. That's a, this, this, book is, uh, this book has been rising to the top of most recommendeds ever. It's amazing. I've never read it. I, I think I, I think. Oh, well, yeah. I, I mean, it's, 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 I think it's like eight or 900 mm -hmm. pages. Yeah, that's and, one of the reasons it's kind of scary. Uh, and, my, and when I finished, I, I was, it was like Game of Thrones. I could, I was very disappointed it was over. Great. Okay. Um, and then last but not least, what, what's in your ideal sandwich? In my ideal sandwich? Yeah. 
Well, uh, when I'm being, it depends on whether I'm being a situational vegan or whether I'm just being a regular guy. Uh, a regular guy, it's probably bacon, lettuce, and tomato. I like those. Uh, but uh, otherwise, it's it's the grilled tofu upon me <laughs> for, that I like. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for participating, and I wish you best in retirement and whatever you do next. I'm sure <laughs> you're going to you. be great at. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I'm Vic Singh, and you've been listening to Book Stories. Book Stories is produced by Alternate Thursdays in Los Angeles. 